It's the show where Hawaii's newsmakers come to talk and to take your questions live. From the nation's capital to Honolulu Hale, from the state legislature to the fifth floor, we bring the experts to you and ask them what you want to know. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Palaisuji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Aloha and good morning. Thanks for joining us here on this Monday morning. I'm Ryan Kalei Suji, joined by Yenji Denise. And this, of course, is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This morning, we focus in on kauhales, which we know has been a big part of Governor Green's initiative here to help homelessness in the state. That's right. And in order for that to move forward, of course, the units themselves need to be built. The folks behind a lot of that effort are homemade. So joining us this morning is the new executive director of Homemade, Kimo Cravalho. Kimo, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, So good to see you. You know, we know that you folks are the ones who are responsible for building the facility just across the street from Queens that so many of us have seen and that the uh, governor is really championing, championing, championing as a model of what this could look like for other communities as well. Uh, Let's talk a little bit broadly about the Kauhale concept, Uh, your thoughts on it and why this could be a good remedy for a problem that has plagued our community for so long. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, for Kalhale, the concept is really to create uh, communal facilities where, um, you know, homeless can actually share uh, restrooms, uh, kitchen spaces, uh, shared facilities. It actually is really a concept to bring people together and connecting. Uh, Traditionally in the past uh, for the homeless uh, continuum, what we've done is we've relied on what's called a scattered site model. Uh, So what that is, is, you know, we partner with landlords and property management companies to uh, partner with the homeless continuum and to house as many people in apartment buildings, you know, rooms and whatnot. For Kalhale, however, the difference this time is we're actually creating communities where we can actually keep people together. And, you know, that has actually uh, resulted in healing in developing people's full potential and capacity to really thrive in, in a community and an environment where you can connect and, and grow and thrive together. So we're really you know, excited about the concept. Uh, this is something we've been promoting for years. And um, in terms of this recent project with Kulama Ola, you know, that's just one type of uh, Kahali model. Uh, it is a medical respite transitional facility, but there are others that we're, we're hoping to develop with the state and other private entities. Let's talk a little bit about this most recent, uh, you know, Kalhale unit that have been set up, as, as Yenji mentioned, across of Queens Hospital. And, and you just mentioned it's, it's a little different in that it's a medical respite. Uh, when going through that process of establishing this specific units uh, in this location, uh, what were some of the differentiating factors uh, and how long do you foresee this type of structure being in place at this facility? Well, you know, we were able to develop 12 units um, in eight weeks and uh, completed the project in that short amount of time. Uh, We did that because there was an emergency proclamation that allowed us to really bypass a lot of the regulations that often does prevent us from building that fast in these type of units as well. So structurally um, and from a site uh, layout perspective, this would not have passed building code, but we did not compromise on health, safety, culture, and environment. We actually put a lot of justification into uh, the design 
And we still want to make sure these facilities that we're developing are safe. Um, in terms of uh, the homemade model, you know, we're able to bring in, I think, 39 different contractors. And, you know, just that partnership with the private sector to quickly build uh, really allowed us to deliver on that timeline. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, you know, the organization for folks who aren't familiar with home. What is homemade? Um, how are you able to gather those kinds of resources and, and kind of bridge that gap that you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, Homemade Hawaii is a nonprofit developer. Uh, our, uh, we are exclusively focused on building housing solutions for uh, homelessness and at-risk populations. So I don't think there's actually any other organization that's focused exclusively on this um, uh, in terms of this uh, service. Uh, for Homemade, what makes us uh, unique is that we partner with um, probably over 100 different um, uh, vendors, you know, they donate materials, supplies, and then we partner with a lot of the trades, um, you know, from engineers, architects, uh, contractors uh, to actually provide volunteer labor. And so that brings down the cost of development significantly to save um, probably almost about 80% on the total cost of construction. So when we're able to uh, build affordable, uh, uh, you know, different uh, sites, uh, that actually allows you know the affordability to be passed on to the end consumer so hopefully that makes it much more affordable for the residents living there when you look at something like kulama ola and the current structure when that uh, is eventually not needed or there's a more permanent facility for that could those kahalis that are in place those actual units be used and transported to other areas how uh, if you can speak about the mobility of that, do you foresee a time where you could be moving these structures based on needs in different communities? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that um, I think is important to me is that um, what is different from maybe past administrations is that we're actually co-designing with the end user, whether that's the provider or the homeless encampment themselves. In terms of this uh, last project at Kulama Ola, we, you know, understood that it could be temporary and that if we need to relocate it, it would be mobile. So we actually built for that. So the, the way the units are, are assembled and lined up, they're not connected. Uh, they're not like a 10 plex where they're connected and there's infrastructure tied to it. So we are able to, um, you know, relocate them if and when the state chooses to. So we, you know, we gather a lot of those insights and we put a lot of thought into the design, into the layout and into, you know, the site development. And moving forward, we know that the governor has said he wants about two dozen sites, uh, similar sites, but serving different needs, not necessarily medical respite. The next ones could be more sort of semi-permanent um, across the state. Do you see yourselves as, as the person who, or as the organization rather, who will be building all of those, uh, all of those communities? What, what is your relationship there? Yeah, we certainly have the capacity and potential to be the state's Kauhali developer. Uh, we hope to be, um, you know, there's a few sites that we've already been in discussions about just to explore the capability. Um, in terms of those sites, you know, it's, it's good to identify land first, but I think when we get involved, the process includes doing a civil site assessment. You know, we want to make sure the land uh, has infrastructure. We want to make sure there's no environmental hazards. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into just sort of the selection of the, of the site itself. And then from there, identifying the end user and then bringing them into the co-design process to, you know, figure out what this facility is going to be. 
they're not always tiny homes. You know, we can always look at different alternative building structures. Uh, here in Hawaii, you know, we are so accustomed to building single family homes, apartment buildings and condos. And what we're missing is what's called this missing middle inventory. And that can include, you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, basically alternative uh, structures that are not, uh, we don't have a, a building code for. So, you know, based on the community and the insights we gather, you know, we design that type of facility. And then from there, uh, we implement the construction plans and the development plans. So based on, you know, the state's uh, identified properties, that would be the process that we would go into just to even get to um, whether or not there are conceptual plans that will be developed. I wonder if you can share some of the success stories that you've seen already with uh, other villages called Hales that you have set up. Um, what, how has the response been by those who are utilizing the facility? What are you learning through this process as well? Uh, and, and just if you can glean off of some of that to help prepare for some of these future projects that could be down in the pipeline. Yeah, so, um, you know, we're really proud of Kamaoku uh, at Kalailoa in um, Kapolei. Uh, so that was our, our first Kauhale when um, the governor was in his previous role as uh, lieutenant governor. And um, to your point, we a lot of lessons learned. You know, we learned, for example, um, just sort of the proximity of restroom facilities to the units. You know, some people uh, don't want to actually walk an extra 30 feet if uh, the restroom facility is a little further down. So there's a lot of these sort of learned lessons. Um, we're actually, even in the Pulamaola development, because we're building differently, you know, we're documenting um, a lot of the barriers that actually would prevent us otherwise from building these type of facilities. So we're really not just a developer, we're also sort of like an information gatherer that can help the state inform, uh, you know, policy decisions for land use ordinances and building codes. But in terms of uh, lessons learned, Ryan, we, um, I think, you know, what we're seeing is that the, the nature of bringing communities together to connect with each other, to find common interests, to actually, uh, when they're connecting and they're they're coming out of grief, loss, and trauma, you know, by by understanding each other's lifestyles, um, they can help support each other. Here in Hawaii, you know, we've built to live in isolation. You know, a lot of neighbors no longer know each other; uh, they don't connect. But here in this type of community and the way we've designed it. You know, people actually come out of their homes. They we actually created these spaces where they can, you know, foster relationships and actually connect with each other. And I think that's what makes it very unique and probably the most significant value out of the Kahali model that we're learning from already. When the governor joined us earlier this week, uh, or, or last week rather, on Friday, uh, he talked about two potential sites: one at Middle Street and one in Hilo. The Hilo site being more of a similar to a medical respite in that they would address some addiction issues. I don't know how much you can reveal or not reveal, but there's a question here from the audience. Grant Phillips wants to know: Can you talk about the potential Hilo Kauhale? We know that there are uh, Kauhales. There's a there is a great need uh, on the neighbor islands for similar structures. Uh, what, if anything, can you tell us about what's happening in Hilo? Um, I, I don't know about what specific uh, Hilo site uh, uh, Grant is talking about, but there are several actual um, private landowners, uh, county and state government parcels that you know we are aware of. Um, again, it really comes down to the site assessment first to even see the potential of developing on that land. And so we are um, in conversations with probably a couple dozen uh, landowners uh, from public and private sector 
In terms of Middle Street, uh, we're aware of it. Um, we hope to be selected as a developer. Uh, we have yet to, to have that conversation. In fact, I was just made aware of the, the selection of the site last week. So, um, but, you know, uh, same process, uh, you know, I think uh, doing the site assessment, working with the encampment, if that's gonna be permanent housing, we absolutely wanna make sure we're designing for the end user. You know, think about this in terms of your own home. You know, you don't want me to come into your home and tell you how to renovate your house. Uh, we want you to have your input in terms of how you're gonna live that lifestyle. And so I think including them in that process is gonna be critical. And we do the same for any encampment with addictions or, or other subpopulations as well. If you can go into a little more detail explaining uh, more than just, uh, of course, building this facility and getting this up and running, there is, of course, some just re um, commitment to programs and services. Uh, of course, the ones that the one has been established around Queens Hospital, more of a medical respite, but the ones looking forward uh, for future programs, there are other organizations that are also involved in helping to take care of the people that are, are being admitted in and, and being accepted into these roles. Is that all taken on by your organization uh, or, or do you guys partner with other organizations to help oversee some of the more management side of this? Because uh, as the governor said, he wants, you know, potentially 20 of these types of villages throughout the state, uh, but also recognizing that beyond just getting it set up, there is some operating uh, logistics that go into this. Yeah. So, um, it really is tailored to the encampment and, you know, the site. So, um, you know, for one encampment in particular, we're already starting conversations about how they would like to operate. Some of the conversations that we're having is, you know, um, there's the reality to uh, cost of water, sewage, and electric. You know, how will they, you know, create and design a rental model that's going to actually collect the needed funds to pay for the utilities and amenities? So um, also there's, uh, you know, this encampment in particular, they want to take ownership over their own security. Uh, they really feel this sense of uh, kuleana to ensuring that, you know, what's being developed for them is, is cared for by them. So I think it's really a compromise or rather more of a partnership and coordination and collaboration with us as a developer uh, to design and develop based on what they're, they're sharing with us. And I think where they see gaps, it's bringing in uh, service providers and I think that's what makes us unique. You know, we're really a connector. Um, and I see my role being that specifically because I come from both human services and development. So I'm bringing these two worlds together to sort of understand each other um, and really kind of co-designing, co-developing and seeing, you know, what is the role of a provider if needed or necessary? Uh, maybe they uh, operate alongside a provider or maybe they just bring the provider in for services when needed. Um, but they're really kind of taking ownership. So I think there's really, it's, it's, it's so scalable between, you know, what the encampment is able to take on or not. You know, you mentioned your own background, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Um, we, we mentioned at the top that you are new to this role. Um, tell us a little bit for folks who aren't familiar with your resume about what you're bringing to this and, and why this particular position is exciting to you, why you felt that, you know, you wanted to take this on. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I've been uh, in human services now for about 20 years. Um, uh, prior to this, I was actually in the healthcare industry. I used to be a paramedic and a medical student in New Orleans before coming home. And so when I came home, I, you know, got involved in the human services industry and I started at IHS, the Institute for Human Services. So about uh, 16 years ago, uh, we were a $2 million organization with just two shelters. And by the time I left, 
I think we're a $23 million organization with 11 facilities. And so I was involved in a lot of the developments, including Kahoiki Village, uh, to uh, cut family homelessness in half. Uh, we built Holly Maliola at Sand Island for pet owners and homeless living in their cars. Uh, we built Tutu Burt's Homes, uh, met, uh, other medical respite facilities, as well as um, uh, addiction homes for um, homeless with dual diagnosis that had both mental illness and addiction. So really have you know, seen the gamut of development over the last uh, several years. Um, I spent a little bit of time at Liliogani Trust. I built their uh, youth services center for opportunity youth who are aging out of systems. Um, that included a residential facility. So all to say, Yunji, this is sort of the next gradual step, I guess, in my development career. Um, but, you know, I think the reason why I got involved in this, it's, you know, to see uh, to see an impact on homelessness, you, you, you can cut, you can slice and dice this any way you want. It always comes back to housing. And I know we talk a lot about affordable housing as being the solution to homelessness, but from my experience, a lot of the investments that have traditionally been made in affordable housing has not moved homeless off the streets into uh, housing. And that's where you know, I think a lot of my passion comes from. And then just on another note, uh, you know, the, the, in terms of the resume, this is very personal to me. Um, my biological mother is, uh, she's been homeless for 23 years uh, with schizophrenia. She's been living in the Alamana area. Uh, she's the reason why I ended up in foster care. And so I think, you know, advocating for solutions such as um, assisted community treatment laws and interventions for mental, mentally ill homeless uh, that are incapacitated, um, you know, it's just uh, just sort of where I felt I belong. And, and so that's kind of part of my background. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. Uh, it's great to hear and, and really can see where your passion comes from for these projects. Uh, when, when you're talking about passion, obviously, sometimes uh, you need that because there are a lot of roadblocks that I, I could imagine exist uh, when trying to stand something like this up. What, what have been some of the bigger challenges that you feel uh, you've had to face during this time? And, and what are some of the challenges that still maybe constrain you and the organization from doing more than maybe you would like to? Great question. Um, I, you know, I think the the challenges really come down to the barriers that have been established to prevent us from developing creative housing solutions. Um, you know, this problem is systemic. Uh, you know, one specific example is, um, you know, for another project that we're looking at, you know, for this site, it has a potential to really increase the capacity of moving a lot of people off the streets. But Department of Health has a formula that was developed by engineers in terms of the cap of how many people can actually live on that site. But the infrastructure is actually able to hold a lot more people. So we've developed these rules and policies that, you know, sort of limit our ability to maximize land space. And so you know, every little turn that you make, there's always a reason to say no. And I, I'm always trying to get to how do we get to yes? Um, and I think, you know, for me, that's probably where a lot of my frustrations lie. Um, but, you know, I'm really grateful to work with um, a large network of professionals, both in the public sector and private sector, that's really trying to, to make this work and advocate. But, you know, in terms of this problem, it is systemic and it's in every little step of the process. And so, it's, you know, taking a little slice at every problem and trying to constantly justify or think through solutions. And it involves a lot of capacity and thinking. You know, you mentioned at the top that you're hoping to become the Kohali developer of the state. And 
we we know very you know we're very uh, aware of the governor's plans, but I'm interested to hear a little bit about the private landowners and the conversations you've been having there. Uh, are those folks seeing this as you know a community service uh, and essentially uh, sort of giving that land and 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 making that possible, or is there some money to be made in this? Is Kauhale actually profitable? Um, I don't think it's profitable at all. I think that uh, for a lot of the land, the private landowners that I've been talking to, you know, this is about um, them giving back, uh, understanding that as developers, they have a kuleana and a stake in solutions. Um, there has not been one private landowner that has looked at this as an opportunity to make money or profit. And in fact, you don't profit as much at all on Kalhale. Um, the first, you know, real project that I saw in terms of the financial model was Kahawiki Village, where, you know, with Dwayne Carisu, we built these uh, tiny home units for families and we changed the finance model where it they're paying a fixed rental rate versus 30% uh, of income, regardless of what they make. What was interesting about that is um, from a property management perspective, they did not make any profit to actually pay for a lot of the facilities and amenities and the maintenance costs. So I think, you know, just lessons learned from that, even, you know, I think there's, uh, that's where a lot of philanthropic uh, community support is still needed just to operate this type of facility. If you can speak to that, I mean, is that a, a major part of this organization and, and how has the response been? I know you said that there are people who are interested, but do you think that as more people become educated about these, this Kauhale concept that you're able to reach out maybe to other donors to help with, offset some of these costs? Because I can imagine that as time goes on, uh, the overall operating budget for programs like this and for a system like this will require uh, much more additional funding. Yeah, um, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, part of our role is not just to be a housing developer, it's also to be a problem solver in developing those sustainable operations. In fact, that's a, a major criteria of ours when we're even selecting projects to pursue and work with communities on. Um, I think that, you know, lessons learned from uh, developments like Kawiki Village can absolutely inform how we can look at sustainable operations. But the honest truth is, you know, we need, I've always believed that the private sector should always invest in innovation and creative solutions. And when it becomes proof of concept that it really should become a public benefit to the community and government should sustain it where possible. I do feel, however, that we can't just uh, create all these kahales and government is paying for everything. I think there is some kuleana in terms of the community, and I hope to really build their capacity to think about financial sustainability as well. So you know, I think that's what makes Homemade uh, unique in that sense. It's, it's, we're really a connector and problem solver across you know, the whole development spectrum you know, bringing the community in is going to be one of the big challenges for the governor. He's really talked about having Yimby, yes, in my backyard as, as sort of changing the narrative there. Uh, what are some of the conversations that you're having and, and what would you talk to the public about why they should embrace this model and welcome um, these small villages into their neighborhoods? Because we are anticipating some pushback. Yeah, um, I hate to say every development uh, project that I've worked on, there has been at least a, a tiny few that have been very vocal. Um, it's uh, it's always probably going to be an issue. But, you know, I think um, for reasonable communities where they're open to listening and being educated, 
Um, oftentimes their concerns are that by moving homeless people into their communities, it's gonna increase crime, uh, vandalism, other issues. And what we've actually shown through other examples and properties is that that's absolutely not true. In fact, it's actually done quite the opposite. It's actually improved communities. And so I think, you know, it's just part of the process. Uh, and, you know, again, that's part of our role, uh, the community development aspect of it. I wish that there was a policy where, you know, it's not about who, which communities wants a Kauhale. It's about every community, where are you going to do a Kauhale? And, and really making this, you know, uh, a statewide driven, you know, uh, conversation. Like it's, it's not about should we, how are we going to do it? When you uh, look at some areas uh, of our community, uh, you, one of the concerns is just the overall space. So if there is an area where there is an obvious need uh, for this, where there is an increased homeless camp or encampment, uh, how do you solve the problem of just having enough space? Say it is within the urban core or in the Hawaii Kai Kahala area uh, around Diamond Head where space is very limited. Uh, how do you foresee managing through some of those issues in just finding locations that can adequately support this? Um, you know, I think it, it, it does come down to identifying who are the landowners and who's willing to engage in support. From my experience, uh, a lot of the homeless that are in these communities are actually from these communities. Uh, these are not people who are traveling to these different communities. They're there because they feel comfortable and they know these communities better than any other space. And so, you know, I think... Um, if it's not a Kauhale uh, that's that's possible because of land limitations, then let's look at other creative housing solutions. There's many other models out there that I think um, it doesn't have to be me as a developer. It can also be, you know, uh, seniors sharing rooms. It can also be, you know, there's other scattered site models that we've deployed in the past that might be more sufficient for that community. I think regardless, it's it's about how do we as a community find solutions for our neighbors who are actually from these communities, and it doesn't always have to be Kauhale. I'm interested, you know, you talked about affordable housing and how that has been really championed and as, as sort of a way out of this issue. And I know that um, that is definitely part of the conversation. But why do you think that Kauhale, you know, how could that really change things? What, you know, why are you optimistic about this particular model as opposed to all the other approaches that we've seen over, you know, the last few decades? Yeah, you know, I hate to say for the last uh, few administrations, we have really tried to educate government that, you know, affordable housing financial investments do not necessarily result in moving encampments off the streets. And um, I think there's some poverty advocates that have occupied the homeless continuum advocacy spaces. And unfortunately, that's sort of um, watered down, you know, what's actually happening versus what's needed. So to answer your question, what gives me a lot of hope, and I guess um, what excites me is that now we have Kauhale, which is a focus policy that is dedicated and commit, commit, committed to developing a deeply affordable housing for homeless. And I think with that focus and the separation of Nani and James at the government to really see the two as separate, I think this is going to be a huge change for our community and our investment in the next decade. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, we're almost out of time, but before we let you go, I want to just provide you an opportunity for just some final thoughts and final statement this morning for those who uh, may be learning more about Kahales or, or just what your overall vision is about where you see uh, this organization heading towards in, in the next few years. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, for Homemade Hawaii, we're, we're fairly new. We're about eight years old. 
Um, and I know a lot of people are still trying to understand who we are and what we do. And, you know, I think tuning into programs like this to get educated is a great start. But, you know, if people want to continue, please go to our website, uh, which is homemadehawaii.org. Uh, sign up for our email newsletters um, and, you know, follow us and, and get engaged where possible. You know, this is not just us as developers. Uh, we, we do need the development industry. So if there's anybody out there who has skills uh, that are um, possible for us to utilize in our developments, that'd be great. Otherwise, you know, we can always use the community when we're getting sites ready uh, through donations and whatnot. So thank you. Okay, Kimura Covalho, Executive Director of Homemade. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Hello. Aloha. Thanks. Well, Ryan, we've been talking about Kahale for some time now, and it's very interesting to hear from Kimo about, you know, what his organization has been doing and about the model that they have brought in. They bring in private developers, as he said, and uh, engage with government, and they are the ones who are actually, you know, uh, hammer and nails and building the sites themselves. They hope to become the uh, Kauhale developers statewide. And it was interesting also how he talked about, you know, that they're really engaging with government, but they're also hearing from a number of private landowners who want to replicate this model uh, across the state. Yeah, and really just the importance of talking, communicating with the community themselves to figure out what the Kauhale or the village that is going up, uh, what it looks like in their community, saying that each one is different uh, could have a different look to it in terms of the structure and the overall standards. You, you heard him talk about possibility of a duplex or a triplex or different sorts of structures that may be more adequate for a community, but also going on to how they want to live and how they want to govern the facility and, and use and operate it overall. Uh, and so a lot of those conversations begin within the community themselves to find those partnerships that will be able to sustain that. He used the example uh, and the lessons learned of the village that was created over in Kalailoa as an opportunity for them to learn just simple things about the distance between a restroom uh, and the general shared area compared to some of the actual living spaces. And so they are continuing to learn through these process as we will no doubt see more of these come up throughout the state. Yeah, and just amazing to hear about the timeline that, that you can create, you know, the, the um, facility that is across the street from Queens in really just a matter of weeks, getting that up and running uh, and seeing an immediate change. You know, we know that there are about 10 units there and that they are servicing people as we speak, uh, people who might otherwise be on the street lying in front of the hospital, as so many of us have seen. Uh, now those folks actually have some place to go. Uh, he talked a lot about changing the narrative and, and having people really embrace embrace this, not a question of if they'll have this in their community, but where they would have it and really hoping uh, that he can change public, he and others, of course, can change public perception about what it means to have these facilities in a neighborhood saying that there is this fear that, you know, crime would increase or that you would uh, attract elements that folks don't want in their community. And he's saying, actually, it does just the opposite that uh, really, you know, get, giving these people a place to stay, providing services and then how you know breaking that cycle is what they're hoping this will do so i'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from him uh in the years and months to come and we invite him back uh soon to talk about any kind of successes they're having there perhaps middle street perhaps in hilo uh perhaps elsewhere so we'll continue this conversation uh and we have a very exciting week coming up on friday we're going to be hearing from jimmy tokioka he's the new head of dbed uh he's also uh one of the governor's choices to be on the board for HTA. Yeah, and of course, uh, Jimmy T Tokyo coming as a state representative from Kauai moving over to the Department of Transportation before assuming this role at DBED 
uh, after you know the governor's previous appointees did not pass that confirmation process. Uh, and so Tokyoga coming into this role, we want to talk to him about his plans for this department uh, that seemingly has a, a lot of things happening within it. They're going to have to oversee the stadium, of course, the tourism contracts, uh, and just overseeing the business development side of the state. Uh, we look forward to that conversation as well as the rest of the conversations that we have scheduled for this week. We hope we'll see you right back here on Wednesday for another episode of Spotlight Hawaii. Until then, take care and aloha. Aloha.